Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, well, there was a bit of a, a, a set to, uh, for, for want of better words, today uh, with the U.S. Um, State Department, a deputy spokesperson for the State Department, uh, basically related to a recently uh, released report by the IDF, which said that it's a very strong likelihood that it was someone from the IDF, the Israeli side, who killed Shirin Abu Akleh, the Palestinian-American or uh, Palestinian uh, uh, journalist with American citizenship who was killed um, a number of months ago in a shootout in Jenin. Um, the interesting thing about this is just really to show where Israeli society is. Um, over the last few months, we've been talking a lot about the Iran deal. Uh, we've talked quite a lot about the Palestinian issue. We've talked about all different things. And you did not see the reaction uh, in Israel from uh, the leaders to any of these issues publicly, openly, uh, that you did on this, because the spokesperson basically said that we are trying to push Israel to change its rules of engagement. And anyone who knows anything about Israeli society knows that the IDF is a sacred cow. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, most uh, Israelis at the age of 18, whether uh, male or female, go to the army with some exceptions, the most prominent being the Arab community and the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, so, you know, everyone or not everyone, but many, most Israelis have someone in the army, most Israelis have done the army, most Israelis understand what it is to be in the army, and those who have been in combat units, especially who have, uh, excuse me, who have experienced the, the, the fog of war, who have been in even gunfights, uh, understand that, you know, uh, what happens there is not something that uh, should be poured over in diplomatic events, in international forum. And obviously, there's a continued call for uh, some antagonists uh, to Israel to even arrest uh, or, or have uh, some uh, IDF soldiers prosecuted. Now, it's clear from the Israeli investigation, first of all, the fact that they came out and admitted it should also be applauded to a certain extent, because it would have been easy for them just to ignore it and hope the issue would have gone away. But they came out and said that the likelihood is that it came from an IDF side. Um, but the idea that it was intentional was shot down. Uh, there were clear um, a misunderstanding, perhaps even misidentification. Uh, but what people should understand uh, outside and those who have never served in combat units, who have never been under fire, is it's very hard to see who's who. You're being shot at. <clears throat> Apparently, in that particular operation, there were terrorists shooting from all different directions. So it's very hard to sort of sit and go through all these different channels and decide, should I shoot, should I engage? You know, um, those who are pontificating in, uh, you know, far-off foreign ministries um, should really understand what the Israeli soldiers who are going to arrest terrorists 
those who sent already murderers into Israeli cities and could continue to do so have to understand what these soldiers are going through, bullets whizzing past their ears as they have to respond in time. They can't wait. They have to uh, understand. And, and Israeli rules of engagement are pretty strict. You know, you can't just shoot at someone. You have to get permission. You have, first have to shout in their direction. Then you have to shoot in the air. And then maybe a, uh, a non-lethal shot. And only then uh, you're allowed to. So there's actually um, probably many armies around the world uh, have less strict um, rules of engagement. So the idea that uh, you know there'd be a call, even from our closest friends and allies in the US, for a change in the rules of engagement was immediately shot down by Prime Minister Yair Lapid, uh, was shot down by Defence Minister uh, Benny Gantz. And again, it really just shows of all the issues, the one you do not touch uh, in Israeli society. And that's why you have these prominent figures who are coming out and openly attacking uh, the, you know, those voices in the State Department and perhaps elsewhere who are calling or pushing, as they claim, uh, for Israel to change its rules of engagement. Um, so that was quite an interesting uh, moment, considering everything that's going on uh, with the engagement between Israel and the US on the, JC, uh, on the return to the JCPOA uh, and, and other issues. I promised tonight that I would talk a little bit about the, the campaign. Um, you know, we've spoken quite a lot about it over the last few weeks and how it hasn't really got going. Well, uh, a lot of people expected September to be the, the month that things are, are moving. And certainly uh, this, you know, this week is probably, uh, you know, the most intense week as far as the parties are closing, um, you know, on, on with different uh, 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 workers, employees for the party, getting their communications people taking polls. I mean, probably these have already been done, but really closing the gaps uh, to get going in the next few days. On the 15th will be the closing of the party lists. In other words, the party lists will be handed over to the Electoral Commission, and that's it. They, they cannot be changed after that. They cannot be added to. If someone drops out, the next person on the list just moves one uh, place forward. Um, what we are seeing, as we see in most elections uh, in Israel, is really two stages. We see the opening sort of stages where parties are sort of trying to identify themselves a little bit, but not really hard hitting issues. And then usually as we get closer to the, um, the elections themselves, some of the uh, issues, uh, how each party differentiates itself, uh, who they decide to pick a fight with, um, et cetera, et cetera, really becomes clearer. And, and we're already starting to see um, some of this taking shape now. Again, there's two sorts of ways that Israeli parties will try uh, and, and run these uh, campaigns. The first is you try and differentiate yourself uh, between those closest to you on the political map. Obviously, if you're on the right wing, uh, then you have to try and uh, say why uh, you, know, you should vote for us in Likud or you should vote for us in Religious Zionist Party or even Shas or, or maybe some of the other smaller parties which are flirting with the electoral thresholds. Um, another another way, and obviously that the same thing happens on the left. Another way uh, to sort of differentiate yourself is by attacking someone on the other side, making yourself uh, a, a sort of enemy. Uh, and sometimes this works uh, for both parties. We've seen in the past in Israel, Beitain and Shas. Sometimes it was even coordinated. Other times less so. They like to uh, attack each other's constituency uh, constituents, I should say. And the issues which are most important to them, we saw in the past, Shas 
basically claim that uh, any sort of conversion reform leads to sort of fax marriages where you just stand under a and you get a fax that you're married, you know, sort of uh, mocking um, the way people are uh, com- uh, would be converted under Yisrael Beitein, who has suggested reforms of the conversion system, obviously would hurt them because uh, the videos mocked, you know, uh, people with Russian accents, which is obviously a large constituency for Yisrael Beitein. Yisrael Beitein would then uh, shoot back against the, the Haredi way of life, etc., uh, etc. Et and uh, uh, sometimes that actually worked both of them because, you know, the, the more controversial campaigns will get a lot more play in the media and it will uh, really speak to their base, which will ensure that they come out to vote. Uh, so those are sort of the, the, the two ways. And I'm, I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview on some of the parties that we've noticed certain things over the last week. First of all, again, there are efforts to join Merits and Labour. We're talking about the two most left-wing parties. If you remove the, on, let's say, on the Zionist uh, or the mostly Jewish map, uh, Merits is to the left of Labour. Merits has just uh, you know, had a leadership battle on Zava Galon. A former leader of Merits uh, has uh, won that leadership battle, won it very convincingly against Yair Golan. And the first thing uh, she tried to do and has been trying to do ever since is trying to convince Merav Mikhaili, the leader of the Labour Party, to join. Merav Mikhaili has said for a long time, uh, and I know this personally, that she has no intention of joining. She sees her party as having something unique. Her goals uh, and her campaign will be around sort of trying to return as much of a social welfare state, the social uh, net um, uh, that uh, that she believes has been lost um, to uh, more capitalist ideas, more right-wing economic ideas over the years. And she believes that is the answer to some of the uh, issues affecting uh, Israelis especially with the cost of living going up. And she believes that that makes her unique and there's no reason for her to join. Uh, She was buoyed after the last elections uh, when she was polling four or five and again, flirting with the electoral threshold. And in the end, she got, I think, eight or nine seats. Um, So there's a certain feeling that she can do the same and there's no reason to partner with Merits. There's enough votes on the left to go around. Merits is polling around five, which means it's only one seat away from potentially falling below the electoral threshold. Uh, Yale appeared, who obviously is the leader of the left, center-left uh, bloc, is very keen for the two parties to get together because this elections could really hinge on if any party doesn't pass the electoral threshold, that could give the other bloc a major advantage. If a right-wing party doesn't pass the electoral threshold, that's pretty much the end of any chances of uh, BB passing 61. And even though Lapid is quite away, according to every single poll from 61, uh, certainly his chances will not be made any easier if merits to uh, fall under that threshold. So Lapid is offering all sorts of goodies to the two leaders, especially Labour, trying to give perhaps uh, uh, Labour members places on his list, which would mean uh, to expand the number of Labour MKs in the next Knesset. Uh, as I said, at uh, this point in time, Mirav Mikhaili is resisting. Um, my money would be on the two parties running separate, but I guess it just comes down to how generous Yale appeared is or how desperate he is to ensure that there's no chance that any uh, party on his block will fall below the electoral threshold. Um, the National Unity Party, led by Benny Gantz, 
um, uh, held its inaugural event. It released its list. It was the first party uh, to release its list. As we know, the excuse me, the the, the leadership is Benny Gantz at the top, Gidon Saar, uh, former leader of New Hope, uh, which has folded his party into Benny Gantz's, and is now being joined by former Chief of Staff uh, Gadi uh, IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot. Gadi Eisenkot, as we we spoke about, hasn't really given them the bump. Maybe in the days after he joined. They maybe got one more seat, but we've seen that return to pretty much Yeshatid. Um, you know, both of them are fighting over similar audiences. Um, they put out a very interesting list. It, it's really uh, a sort of there, there's some center left voices, there's some far right voices. There's there's, there's it, it's really sort of all over the map. But that is what Benny Gatz is claiming is their greatest strength that they're able to unite and also be that bridge between the two blocks. Uh, Benny Gantz is claiming that he is the best, he has the best chance of being prime minister from, from that block, and he's making the case to centrists or center-left over Yelapid that only he could form a government because uh, everyone will sit with him uh, eventually. Uh, so he's saying either there are three options uh, after these elections, either uh, Likud, national religious, ultra-Orthodox um, government, uh, the, the second option is we go to new elections, and the third one is a national unity government led by Benny Gantz. So that is the case that he's trying to make. They're not really talking about issues because there are very few issues which unite uh, such a disparate uh, party. So it's really just trying to make the case that Benny Gantz is the best place to lead. And in fact, the slogan of the party is Akharav which is a play on in the Israeli army, you know, commanders or officers are taught after me, they're supposed to lead their soldiers into uh, combat. And that's a very well-known phrase uh, in Israel because of that. So now the idea is after him. Uh, so that that's, again, you know, it's, it's, it, it lacks issues, it lacks policies, but that's the case they're trying to make. Uh, moving across uh, the spectrum to Shas, Shas, again, uh, is the uh, Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party, but as opposed to its Ashkenazi uh, counterpart, uh, the majority of people who vote for Shas are not ultra-Orthodox. They appeal uh, not just to the ultra-Orthodox, but especially um, the so-called underprivileged, this is what they would themselves call them, uh, Sephardim, uh, Jews from the Middle East, North Af uh, Africa, uh, and those who are traditional, perhaps religious or even secular, who have respect for religion, who uh, buy into this idea that Arya Deri uh, cares about them, sees them, as opposed to all other parties. Uh, in the last elections, or one of the last elections, uh, they talked about the Shkufim, the individual, uh, the invisible ones, uh, saying that this is, you know, that there's a lot of talk in Israel about uh, the first Israel and second Israel, and there's a lot of people who like to play into that. Uh, Arya Deri does very well off that, and that's why they uh, a polling if, uh, between nine and 10. So that is the uh, issue, especially with the rising cost of living and many uh, below the poverty line are suffering. Uh, Shas, as they always do, they talk social issues, they appeal to the wider Sephardim before elections, but usually after elections, they then uh, revert to being almost purely an ultra-Orthodox party. Um, uh, going back to the Ashkenazi counterparts, United Torah Judaism, we talked about this last couple of weeks, there was this potential split between the Hasidic and non-Hasidic uh, parts. Um, as 
I uh, suggested and, and predicted, they found a way to figure it out and work together because there was very little chance of uh, both uh, both wings being able to pass the uh, electoral threshold if they ran separately. Uh, their you know, um, campaign is usually just the rabbis say you should vote for United you know, Torah Judaism. We're bringing uh, back, uh, we're coming back to power because uh, they've been outside and the yeshivot have suffered and uh, many of the payments that the ultra-Orthodox community get from the government have suffered. Um, so that's a case that they'll be making, trying to drive as many of their people out as possible. Uh, Yisrael Be'etenu um, is going to release its list next week. It's going to have its real campaign launch then. Um, at the moment, Vitor Liebman is trying to make the case that uh, you know he's done a good job as finance minister. Many would suggest he has, many would suggest he hasn't, um, but really he's trying to play on the macro level that in, uh, you know, inflation has been uh, good and he uh, under him and he's compared uh, around the world to how many other countries have dealt with the cost of living and the, the rise in costs of uh, gas and other commodities. And Israel's uh, pretty much done quite well. But at the end of the day, when the people are suffering, when they feel a pain, it's a very difficult case to make that you know everything is good. Um, but what I think we will see, in, especially in the second stage, is more sort of attack on the uh, you know the sort of uh, adversaries, uh, which are the Arab uh, political leaders and the ultra-Orthodox political leaders. Um, so I think that will certainly be uh, split into two stages. Another interesting party um, is the Religious Zionist Party, led by Vitalo Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. Uh, they come together after you know uh, weeks of negotiations back and forth. Uh, clearly, Itamar Ben-Gvir is the more popular of the two leaders. Uh, and basically, uh, at this point in time, their case to the public is simply, you know what we are, you know what we talk about, you know what our issues are, you know what we promise, this is who we are. And um, please vote for us. Um, you know, it just sort of shows that even a deeply ideological party as the religious Zionist still hasn't quite figured out what, what it's going to say, what is going to be its policies. I'm sure there will be policies along the way, but the major overall uh, uh, message uh, to the public is, you know what we are, what we stand for. If you want to see us in the next Knesset, uh, vote for us. So that's a, a sort of breakdown of some of the uh, sort of uh, the, the campaigns at the early stages, what they're saying, who they're attacking, who they're aligning with, uh, and what the central messages are, at least in this first stage of campaigning. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have in is a uh, gear shift. Carrie Hillebrand asks, could you comment on the report in the Times of Israel that the U.S. is suspending the JCPOA negoti negotiations with Iran and an anonymous attendee follows up uh, the renewal of the JCPOA seems to have been something of an on and on again, off again item. And can you comment on that? Well, it's, it's very it's very difficult to know because these negotiations are you know they're trying to keep them secret. Um, so I don't really have any more insight uh, except for what's in the media. <clears throat> but it does seem that there seems to be some walking back of a commitment, or at least <coughs> a lack of mention in the in the drafts of um, Iran objecting uh, or making it, you know, a, 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 an issue uh, for the agreement of whether Iran would 
stop the IAEA probe into some of its uh, facilities, which show uh, traces of uranium, which were certainly not catalogued and not mentioned. Um, Iran has, has said on many occasions, they certainly have dropped it uh, vocally and publicly, uh, but it, it, you know, it was suggested by a lot of people who read the text that it uh, wasn't mentioned in the latest text and the Iranians uh, didn't bring it back into the text once it was removed. Um, but it seems as if there may be some movement back on that uh, by the Iranians. Perhaps the Iranians are simply just trying to play for time. There was talk today that the Iranians certainly have enough uh, uranium uh, for a nuclear weapon. Uh, that was um, talked about quite a lot in Israel today. And uh, there's a disagreement amongst Israeli intelligence services uh, whether they should support a return or not. Uh, with uh, Amman, which is the IDF intelligence, basically saying um, that it's, it's probably the best if Iran has enough uranium for a bomb, uh, this is probably the best way to prevent them, at least for now. Whereas the Mossad are against it. They said that uh, we've seen enough of cheating in the past, that if Iran has the know-how at this point in time, uh, you know, uh, no agreement is really going to get rid of that. So everything will just be temporary and basically left up to uh, trust uh, towards the Iranians. So there's a bit of disagreement. It does seem that Iran are either uh, on the cusp of enough uranium for a nuclear weapon or have already enough. Either way, it's certainly uh, interesting uh, to see where we go from here, but there does seem to be a little bit of a step backwards from the Iranians, but we've seen that many, many times before. Thank you. Stuart brought us, uh, do you believe that this step back on the, the US part uh, is because the Biden administration does not wish to harm the election chances of Yair Lapid, and thus will quickly move to do so after the election, assuming that such an act would not alter coalition negotiations to favor Benjamin Netanyahu? Um, I, I don't see it. I know that there is that possibility, and that's something that some in the pro-Netanyahu camp <clears throat> have already started to put out. Uh, some are even claiming that Yair Lapid, or if if the U.S. does take a step back uh, from this, that Yair Lapid will try and make hay from this uh, during the election campaign, how he was able to stop it and Netanyahu wasn't able to stop the original JCPOA. Um, I don't think the Biden administration uh, uh, will, will necessarily take that into account. I, 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 you know, I'm not naive to think that there's never any politics in it, but it seems like it's gone a long way. The Europeans are involved. Uh, you know, honestly, would they prefer Yair Lapid to remain prime minister? Probably. You know, I don't think that's too much of a secret. Um, but I, I think if there was an agreement on the table, the Americans have shown enough eagerness that they would uh, uh, like to sign on to it. Thank you so much. Sandra Bellastrino asks, do you think Israel will continue the campaign of containment in Syria or do you think the IDF will try to deal a coup de grace uh, to Iranian military expansion in that territory. Oh, it was certainly, uh, Israel is certainly going to continue doing everything it can, uh, basically to prevent Iran from uh, setting up a base right on Israel's border and also for the smuggling of game-changing weapons uh, back and forth across the Syrian-Lebanese border to Hezbollah, which are obviously, you know, a very close ally. Um, and a major tentacle of the Iranian octopus sort of in the region. Um, so Israel will continue doing that. It seems to be doing uh, day in, day out. I think it uh, it bombed the runway of the Aleppo 
airport, I believe it was yesterday. <coughs> and these sorties are going on, if not daily, that every couple of days, and I think that will continue. <coughs> Understood. Anthony Field asked, in the UK Parliament yesterday, Michael Fabricant, uh, MP, told the Foreign Office Minister that now is the time to move the British Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Do you agree? Well, of course, in Israel, uh, most people agree that all embassies should be put in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is our capital. It's, in it's not in dispute too much in Israel, obviously. There are some on the far left uh, who will disagree, but <clears throat> it, you know, Jerusalem is the seat of government. It's you know where every uh, foreign government official will come and meet our head of state, meet our prime minister, meet our ministers in Jerusalem. It's not in Tel Aviv. Um, so Israel certainly would welcome any talk of that. I personally don't see that happening. I'm sure there are some voices, as there are many other countries, and it's good that uh, uh, this question was raised in Parliament, but uh, the British certainly will not be uh, high up on the list of uh, those countries who will move uh, their embassy from, uh, from Tel Aviv, where it currently is, uh, to Jerusalem anytime soon. Thank you. Mary Feldman asks, what is Lapid and Gantz's position on the defense of Judea and Samaria? On the defense of Judea and Samaria? Um, I'm, a, I, I, I'm going to make an assumption what that means, because it's quite a broad question. Because if we're talking about defending Israeli citizens there, then I think everybody is pretty uh, strong on that. And that's why the army is there, not just, obviously, for the uh, residents of Judea and Samaria, also for uh, over the Green Line in Israel. Uh, so, so, so sovereign uh, state of Israel as well. Um, I'm assuming the question probably relates more to how much uh, Israeli settlement activity um, they they would like to see. Well, obviously, being center center left parties, they're obviously not as gung ho on uh, building or enlarging um, uh, Israeli communities over the Green Line in Judea and Samaria as some on the right would be. Uh, but we certainly have seen some building. Uh, you know. Perhaps, certainly not as, as much as some on the right would like to see, but let's not forget that when the right was in power, there was also uh, limited building, as there has been for, for a number of years. So I think, you know, you, you can show this statistic, that statistic. I think over the last year, um, it's been, it hasn't certainly been any less building in Israeli settlements in Judea and Samaria than there was under the previous uh, Netanyahu government. Speaking of the Netanyahu government, Kerry asked, uh, to what extent will Netanyahu return to, to the Knesset or his office as prime minister? Well, he's, he's a member of Knesset now. He's the leader of the opposition. Uh, if the question is asking what's the likelihood, I, I've said many times, I think it's the most likely outcome. I don't, <clears throat> I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. He's struggling to get 61, according to all the polls. Um, but he's a great campaigner. They could really only started their campaign today. They, they had uh, what was called a Bibi bus, where basically uh, Netanyahu was on a sort of um, uh, a, a truck and driven around parts of the country uh, with, with the sides being obviously open, but very protected glass. Uh, so he's going around the country. Obviously, you see scenes of, you know, flags and people shouting Bibi, King of Israel, and all these sort of things. But I wouldn't, you know, it, like like uh, like most uh, parties, what uh, the way it usually happens is when you're having an event, whether it's out in the streets or in in a, in a in an event hall or or in a in a um, parlor meeting, you make sure that you have 
enough of your supporters standing outside to make it look like it's spontaneous, to make it look like there's a lot of support. So, you know, we saw in, uh, I can't remember where they went today, they showed pictures of it. And you saw lots and lots of people come out and greet uh, Netanyahu. I'm not saying that none of it was spontaneous, um, but they, they're, they're going to go mostly to places where they know they have strong support. They won't take any risks and have anyone uh, booing or, or you know, shouting anti-Netanyahu statements. Um, but what the Likud is trying to do is trying to really sort of raise the atmosphere amongst their supporters, show that there's momentum uh, of support for Netanyahu to return uh, to, uh, to Balfour, return to the premiership. And they will certainly be hoping that will happen. At the moment, there's still a couple of uh, seats shy of that, according to all polls. Um, but I think that they can, with a very good uh, strategy, a good campaign, and Netanyahu has run some very good campaigns in the past, they can certainly make up that gap. If not, perhaps they can bring Gantz across. That may be more difficult because of the history there and everything else. And Gantz would ask for a very high payment, which would probably be first rotation. Um, but again, if I if I had to put money on one outcome, uh, it would probably be at this point that, uh, excuse me, that Netanyahu would get a 61. Thank you so much. And Eric, sorry, one last question. Does the election of a new prime minister in England, Truss, who is pro-Israel, change the Iran, nego Iran negotiations and the ability to stop Palestinian statehood recognition at the UN? Probably not, because the new prime minister, Liz Truss, of the UK, is pretty much on the same page as the previous one, Boris Johnson, who was also very pro-Israel uh, in relative terms. Um, <clears throat> Um, and the British have always been, uh, let's say, of the Europeans, certainly the strongest uh, towards Iran, uh, or against Iran, I should say. Uh, so I don't see um, uh, the new prime minister uh, taking a different stance on the JCPOA uh, as, as a, a former foreign minister. Um, you know, she'll be aware of all these issues. And certainly uh, the UK is one of our better friends in Europe, uh, certainly on the Palestinian issue, as well as the Iranian issue. But I don't see uh, them taking or staking a, a, a you know, markedly different uh, path than they have done over the last couple of years of the Johnson uh, leadership. I understand. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. Absolutely. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Hannah Balcock-Doc discussing why and how the British media empowers Islamists. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.